0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schistel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Brian Breggi for a conversation about commerce in Florence during the Renaissance. Dr. Breggi is assistant professor of history at Syracuse University based in the US. He specializes in medieval and early modern Europe, and Diplomatic in Imperial History. And he is author of the forthcoming book, Tuscany in the Age of Empire, which will be published by Harvard University Press and is scheduled for release on July 13th of this year, so 2021. Welcome to the show, Brian.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: So we're chatting about what commerce was like in Florence during the Renaissance period. As a scholar, when do you... What period do you define the Italian Renaissance to be?
1: Uh, It's a good question, Uh, a bit of contested terrain, but I would, I suppose, follow the the convention and say that uh, from the mid-14th century, uh, often from right after the Black Death in 1348, uh, and there is a sort of waning of the Renaissance uh, such that it is more or less over by the mid-17th century. So, say,
0: 1350 to 1650 is a good working definition. Okay. And in this period of time, can you speak about the governance structure to create some background for the conversation, what the governance structure in Tuscany was?
1: So Tuscany is uh, politically fragmented and it remains politically fragmented for the whole period. There are multiple independent countries. Uh, They have different levels of sovereignty. So uh, this is a legacy of the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire into its constituent pieces. And uh, the various cities of Tuscany, Tuscany is an unusually urbanized region, um, assert their independence and sovereignty. And over the course of the uh, 14th and 15th centuries, uh, they gobble up their neighbors, most uh, especially Florence, which creates uh, a republic. Uh, a somewhat unstable republic, by acquiring neighbors like Pisa and Pistoia and Arezzo and other towns in Tuscany. But they never do get the whole thing. Uh, So Florence is uh, an independent republic, uh, and by the 15th century, so by the sort of uh, classic Renaissance period, uh, it's one of the, the sort of five major powers in Italy, along with Venice, Milan, the Papal State, and the Kingdom of Naples.
0: So when someone references this state in this period, are they calling it the uh, the Republic of Florence, the Republic, the Florence Republics, uh, something like that? What are they? What are, What do you reference?
1: Yeah, typically they would call it the Republic of Florence, um, and and by Republic, uh, they're they're being intentionally classicizing. It's a sort of rebranding of the Comune, which is a sort of extra legal. Uh, creation of a city government which takes place across uh, all of northern and central Italy. Most of these comune are gobbled up or uh, by by larger powers or or turned into lordships. but a few of them uh, retain their independence and call themselves republics like not just bigger places like Venice, Florence, and Genoa,
0: but also smaller places like Lucca and Siena. Okay. In this period then, when speaking about the Republic of of Florence, uh, if you were to describe it on a on a map um, from the Republic perspective, perspective, because we're not just speaking about the the city in that context, um, what would their territory be demarcated to? Uh,
1: so it's most of Tuscany, um, Tuscany, uh, the modern Tuscany region. Uh, the modern region of Tuscany is uh, the heir of the old Grand Duchy of Tuscany. Uh, this is formed in uh, the. 16th century. It's formed in 1569. And uh, the Grand Duchy reaches its, its sort of greatest extent in the early 19th century. But the uh, Republic of Florence is smaller than that. It is basically Tuscany minus Siena, so minus southern Tuscany. And Siena has uh, important territories extending out to the coast, so out towards Crocetto and the coast in southern Tuscany, and minus uh, the city-state of Lucca. Uh, in the north. so It's, it's mostly the, the Arno Basin. Um, and, you know, Florence struggles uh, violently to hold on to Pisa. So both the first acquisition of the early 15th century and then Pisa rebels. Uh, and it takes Florence 15 years to get it back between uh, 1494 and fifteen oh nine. So uh, it's a pretty compact uh, territory, but it's, it's not a, a city-state in the that limited sense of a, a state confined to a specific city in the way that say Lucca really is.
0: Okay. Uh, so one of the, you know, ba- one of the big questions of this episode then is what was commerce like in, uh, in Florence? So what was commerce like in Florence during the Renaissance? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it, it, it's a, it's a fascinating topic uh, since
1: Florence is uh, a bit precocious. It grows very quickly in spite of its sort of unstable politics in the 13th century and into the 14th. Uh, its initial big growth industry is the wool industry. Uh, this is sort of surprising in that Florence is not a port. Uh, it doesn't have local sources of dyes to speak of, and it doesn't produce any wool. Uh, so how did they do this? So Florence develops a, a rather Florentine merchants, really operating in, in a sort of set of flexible family partnerships spread all over Europe. Uh, develop a sort of web of commerce wherein they import high-quality wool from places like England and later Spain and dyes um, from around the Mediterranean. Uh, and it is processed in Florence and turned into woolen cloths. in uh, There are tens of thousands. It's a, it's a very large industry, uh, a large employer, uh, both in Florence and in neighboring areas of Tuscany, and then it's re-exported. And this is essential for for very basic things. Uh, Florence becomes such a big city uh, before the the Black Death, well over 100,000 people, and not a port. And Tuscany is, in spite of its beauty, a a sort of mediocre agricultural region, especially for grain, that Florence needs to use the money that it makes from its wool exports and then later from its silk exports, which is an industry it starts to develop in the 15th century, Um, and from its financial services experts to to pay for the food that that feeds the population, so uh, its commercial network is really essential to to keeping the city alive.
0: So, in this period of time, when it comes to wool, was it was it exporting? You mentioned exporting. Was it exporting a lot of the wool?
1: Yeah. So pretty much, this is a it's a an industry which is focused on exports. Um, so Florence, yes, there's domestic consumption of high-quality cloth, and you can see that depicted in, in, in Florence and paintings, and, and of silks and other things. And of course, Florence is a large city, is a large market, um, and it does other things. Uh, there's a large uh, construction industry. There's, uh, the Tuscany region does a fair bit of mining um, and, and quarrying, and of course, there are uh, those intangible services, and, and of course it's a wine region. So there are other things going on in the economy. But it's uh, very, and again, like many of the other Italian cities in this period, uh, I think I had very before talking about Venice, and, and Florence in this period is also a very outward-looking um, city. And, and again, in sort of a parallel to Venice, it will become a bit more inward-looking uh, as, as the Renaissance goes
0: on. Where were they exporting? Uh, can you speak about where they were exporting the wools?
1: Absolutely, right. So so Florence usually relies on other countries for its uh, transportation services. So it has, it develops a, a sort of commercial wool fleet in the 15th century, which is never very successful. Um, but they export all over the Mediterranean, including to the Eastern Mediterranean and, and, and elsewhere in Europe. Uh, so Florentine textiles um are produced on, on a pretty large scale and so that they, they need to be moved um to markets anywhere from from uh, the Iberian Peninsula to to the Middle east to places like egypt and Syria um uh, and you know so they develop uh cloths specifically for export and are pretty responsive to to external demand um and it's a it's a very fragmented industry so there's it's uh, there's hundreds of firms and many people are are only part-time investors in the wool industry. They're also involved in other businesses and there are Florentines residents. Just, uh, you know, the, the, the proverb, somebody like Fernand Burdell has quoted is that there's a Florentine in every port, right? They have really very good information about, you know, what do people want? Uh, and they're, they're pretty happy to, to make whatever will sell.
0: One of my questions coming up was if <laughs> something's known about how many companies in this period were in the textile business in Florence. So when you said over 100, are you talking about in Florence or more broadly?
1: Uh, in Florence, right, So, and, and tens of thousands of people working in the industry. It's a, a an industry which is, I suppose, we think of, and, and it's been really important work on economic history this way. It's also with banking, also with others. We think of big companies, and big companies are uh, extremely rare in, in the Renaissance. Instead, everything is really family firms and small partnerships. Uh, and the way that you expand typically is you set up new firms and, or new partnerships, often in different industries. This is somebody like Richard Goldwick who studied this. Uh, and, you know, so you, you set up um, a family banking firm and a family wool firm and maybe a die house and maybe some properties to rent in the city. So you don't typically pour all of your, your money into a into one business or another. There are a few exceptions, but this means that the scale of operations are, are limited by you know, how much capital your family and a small group of partners can have and, and sort of how many brothers and cousins and other people you trust uh, can be involved in the business. Uh, and you know people specialize in different things. There's many stages in production. Uh, and some people sort of focus on moving the thing through their production and some people focus on bringing wool in or exporting finished cloths or, Uh, some attempt to be involved in in every stage in that process. Um, But no sector or no stage is dominated by one firm or even um, uh, a small cluster of that. And that's in part because of guild regulations. So Florence is a a guild republic. um, And guild regulations, you know, the guilds are dominated by their wealthiest members, and and we should think of them as, as being uh, they have a kind of image of, of being associations of workers, but but in Florence, many of the guilds are really associations of small business owners um, and shop owners, these sorts of things. Um, and it's definitely true that the most powerful shop owners uh, dominate the guilds, but the guilds do act as a sort of break on consolidation. Um, their guild rules prevent, you know, how many workers can you have and what kind of techniques can you use and, and sort of thing.
0: Dr. Ron Harris has been on the uh, show in the past, and uh, Guilds came up in, in that episode, and it wasn't an episode directly on, on Guilds. We were speaking about the evolution of the company in the Eastern Mediterranean as, a, as, a, as an area, uh, but guilds, guilds came up, and we touched on it. Can, can you speak about what Guilds were in this context in this period of time?
1: Absolutely. So they differ from city to city. In Florence, they have a strongly political dimension. So the government is constituted by the guilds, and there are regulations. So Florence's government is a series of rapidly rotating councils, uh, and the top council has people in office for two months. They all are in residence in in the Palazzo that guild in what was called the piazza della Signoria. Uh, and so that the guilds are, in some ways, the constituent of the republic, there are no citizens in a general sense. You are supposed to be a member of a guild. The republic will eventually be hollowed out as as an oligarchy, but that will still be done through the guild structure. So the guilds are known as as arte. So there's the arte de la lana, right? So that would be the wool guild. Uh, And that will typically include all of the people who are uh, in the industry who own a business, Right, so masters in the industry, uh, from sort of producers who own their own shop uh, through through major investors. What it will not include is what we might think of as sort of proto-industrial workers. And so there's a uh, a revolution in Florence uh, by the uh, wool workers known as the Chompi, uh, who, who insist on trying to build their own guild, and this is eventually. Uh, suppressed by the other guilds, um, so there is a there's a lot of uh, politicization around that, and the guilds are differentiated between major guilds, big businesses, uh, and then a much larger number of smaller guilds. Um, but those are consolidated for political reasons. So you will have these sort of uh, guilds of of several different uh, things that are that seem unrelated, uh, because only a, a small list of uh, guilds that have a major protein minor um, have the, the right to hold office um, in the Republic and, and office holding is, is really quite important. So you want your business to be associated with one of the sort of official guilds in, in other cities. Guilds are are more commercial entities or could be dominated by workers or could be dominated, but in, in Florence, they tend to be dominated by um politically connected producer interests
0: would you call it a predecessor to to what we know of of a typical association in modern times and you mentioned the guilds in in this period of time had typically had connections with with government was there ever more formalized connections with with government versus like when i hear you know a connection with government in this context i think of well there's a relationship there but can you think of was there ever more of a was it an office was it was there more of a formalized so first part of the question is would you call it as you kind of think about this this topic would you call it a predecessor to an association in modern times and was there ever a more formalized association to and i guess we're talking about the uh the the uh Flo- the Tuscanese Tuscany's um, the Florence's Republic.
1: Uh, so, the, the Republic is in some sense made up of these business associations. Um, there are thousands of members in it, and the Republic changes its constitution many times. So. It is something the Florentines are always tinkering with. And, you know, again, in contrast to Venice, it never works very well, which is part of the reason they keep tinkering with it and why Florence is sort of so interested, interesting in the history of political philosophy is that they keep talking about it. But the actual, all of the... At some level, they don't need an, a specific office. There, there is one, I'll talk about in a second. But uh, they are the government at some level, right? So there's no separation, or indeed any conception that there should be a separation. There, there is a commercial court, quite an important one, called the Metancia. Uh, Florence is a sort of pioneer in having a, a uh, extremely stable, high-value currency and respected uh, commercial court. And the, the, the real concern is you have all these Florentines doing business overseas, um, is this question of, of contract enforcement and trust. Uh, and avoiding reprisals against your your merchants overseas, and in many ways, what the Florentine government is interested in outside of Tuscany is in protecting the commercial interests of, of Florentine merchants, um, and you know, it's, it's very focused on on these kinds of of issues. Uh, they don't really see there as being any substantive uh, restrictions for, on on the kind of regulation that they can do. So Florence's economy and indeed society is is very heavily regulated the, the guilds government can pass most any rules and will mess with small things like you know the size of the dowry or the amount of money you can spend on a wedding or what clothes you can wear or so forth and then they're equally happy to to issue detailed commercial regulations uh, and, and in part that's of course because these are the the same people right um, on both the business side and and the so you might think of it, if we're trying to come up with a modern analogy, it, it would be as if all of the different producer associations in the country um, sort of declared themselves to be the only ones eligible for office. And uh, So not surprisingly, they, they don't really care about consumers at all, and they care only about producer interests.
0: There is so much material here, Brian, with uh, so, so little, so little time. So I'm going to have to pick up the pace as an interviewer here, but this is great, great material, what you're, what you're providing. And some of this stuff could probably be individual episodes in and of themselves. Some, some of these topics like guilds and such in this period of time. Um, Okay. One, probably one last question on the textiles. Um, You mentioned there is import from different areas it's an import. So it's outside of this area, the the Republic of Florence. Uh, what were the key kind of the key areas that were importing materials into, uh, Florence?
1: So the, the, the key wool supplier is in England. And then as England moves into the cloth business, so protectionist legislation, Florence switches to being a big purchaser of Spanish wool and also from, uh, the highlands in Italy, uh, it also needs uh, alum uh, and co- some other dye stuffs. So if you want it to, to be a different color and have that color be fixed, uh, they get alum from the Eastern Mediterranean. And then there is a big dispute, actually. It becomes a political dispute as uh, there's a papal mine developed at Tolfa, Um, And the papacy wants everybody to buy their alum there. Into the 16th century, once, once the Spanish have uh, uh, conquered New Spain, um, so the area that's now known as Mexico, they gain access to an extremely high value uh, red dye known as cochineal, which is based on grinding up little insects that live on a cactus called the Dopal cactus. Uh, and, and Florence is a, is a major importer of this because it produces a, a lovely red color. Um, so that is that Florence is really buying all of the ingredients on the, on the international market uh, and then selling likewise. And so, uh, you know, this is this is done uh, not just with the profits from the wool industry, but it's, it's also done from, from their commercial profits, uh, from uh, running their banking services and other sort of financial services.
0: OK, so textiles, we talked about that. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk banking. Can you share more about what was going on in the banking sector in, in Florence uh, during the Renaissance period?
1: Uh, so it's, it's pretty exciting. This is the, the era that brings us uh, double-entry bookkeeping and Arabic numerals. Okay, so this means, as, as the, the scholars of this have really stressed from uh, the 14th and certainly from the 15th century, you have books of accounts, which, you know, if you can read the language, if you have sort of basic modern accounting skills, you can read uh, and you can do, and people have quite sophisticated analyses of uh, Florentine businesses. So this gives Florentines uh, a bit of an edge uh, in that they are able to run pretty complicated businesses, including complicated banks. Much of the purpose, we have to think of of Italy, for instance, as a place, as a a geographic term, there are many different countries, each with their own currency. And the whole Mediterranean basin has many different currencies in circulation. Uh, It's in addition to all the official coins and complexities of weights and measures, um, the actual coins in circulation might be different from the ones that you use your accounts with. So the Florentines develop a system of monies of account. So all of the various coins that you might interact with in all of these various places are converted to a notional money of account of Lira, which doesn't actually exist as a coin. So it's just a, a an accounting measure that allows them to, in effect, do an exchange rate with this uh, imagined currency. Um, and they... Uh, so a lot of what banks do is they receive... Money in one currency in one place, and they provide uh, access to, you know, through, a, through letters of credit, um, to uh, often money in a different currency in a different place at a different time. And this allows you to travel uh, with what's, the, I suppose, the equivalent of a traveler's check. Uh, but what's sort of sophisticated about this is that they appreciate quite early that this can become a mechanism for extending credit uh, and for skipping out on usury rules. So there are usury rules that impose quite strict uh, restrictions in theory about charging interest. Um, But they're able to adjust the exchange rate so that um, bills that move from one place to another uh, can be exchanged basically different rates and so you can put an interest rate in there. And this means that the the Florentine banks are able, they take deposits, they make loans, uh, and they're able to move money and balance debits and credits across the whole Mediterranean and uh, much of Europe. So they do this with their own money, but they also take deposits from uh, wealthy individuals and especially from the Catholic Church, uh, which has, one might imagine, the most complicated financing needs in Europe, since it's trying to take money in from the whole continent and spend it in different places. Uh, and so families like the Medici make their fortune um, by running uh, the, the papal account. Um, so Florence has a very close commercial relationship with Rome. Um, and, and this helps to to underpin um, the finances. There's a sort of separate story about local banking we can go into, but that's the, the international banking is um I suppose the famous story because it you know the many of the, the instruments that we see as sort of key to the modern finance industry uh are, are first developed in places
0: like Florence and Genoa in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries. The instrument that they were using and applying mm-hmm. around the uh different um, exchange the exchange rates and, and such you called it is a bill what was it called it's called a, a bill of exchange bill of exchange typically. so uh, and it was, go ahead. yeah it, so when, when you examine that um, and keeping in mind what the rules would have been of that given time in the background were they were they operating consistent with what the rules and laws were or were they violating the rules and laws?
1: Uh, it depends. Um, there's a lot of a gray area we might say. Um, so uh, they're certainly not operating in the spirit of restrictive religious legislation, uh, but there's a lot of dispute as to sort of what constitutes usury and what doesn't, and whether, uh, for instance, you're allowed to charge any interest at all or not. right? And so there's a bit of theological dispute about that. Uh, the Florentines are, are definitely on the side of uh, interest is legitimate and okay. Uh, they would also agree that there are predatory levels, but they're, they would say that um, there's a sort of time value to money, you might say, in a modern context, and that somebody who makes a loan uh, deserves to be compensated you know, for not having access to the funds and deserves to be compensated for the possibility that they won't be repaid. Um, so that they're pretty early in that one, and, and they get a lot of pushback. Um, and, you know, th- there are those who subsequently they sort of doubts about whether they were right on the ethical side of this one, and, and so there's a fair bit of um, giving uh, some of the profits of this this commerce uh, to to endow chapels and masses for the dead and so forth to to perhaps square that balance. But that we can overstate this. They would typically write on their account books uh, at an opening phrase like "for God and profit," right? So they're not. Um, Uh, as maybe scholars of a previous generation had suggested, they're really not secular figures. They're quite religious. Uh, They just have a different interpretation of of where Catholic doctrine should be done.
0: Did consumer mortgages exist in Florence in this um, period?
1: Uh, It's an interesting question. There are, so there's there's local lending um, on on a fairly, large scale the local lending is typically secured against uh an asset and that asset can be um actually uh, Dan Smale at harvard is a wonderful project on this um, you know the, the asset can be really anything or, or sometimes it can be against all of your assets so you know your your furniture or your tableware or your bat of wine or whatever uh they, Uh, there are a whole series of rules on timing on this one. People will often borrow against, you know, incoming crops like farmers do now. Uh, And even in highly urbanized regions like Tuscany, you know, agriculture uh, dominates. There's not uh, mortgage banking in in the the modern sense, but there is uh, a fair bit of lending against property. And we should imagine this is an economy which runs... um, and I suppose this is the other sort of precociously sophisticated part about it, very little coinage changes hands at any point in time. Um, Instead, people assign debits and credits quite efficiently simply by making a note in, um, a particular account book. Account books have a a legal standing in court. Um, and so any entry is sufficient to make a loan without any, any of the rest of the, the paperwork. Um, and so you, you assign debits and credits in basically the bank account um, to, to one person or another person, and they carry little bits of paper from one bank to another. Um, so this, this allows you to... Uh, allows basically widespread access um, to, to credit. Uh, in, in the 16th century, there's a move, really, late 15th, um, to use the power of the state uh, to make uh basically state-backed what are called monte di Pietà, uh, and they are uh, basically state-backed pawn shops um which are meant to undercut uh, uh, pawnbrokers and typically will charge sort of five or six percent interest uh, and so that you know that over time interest rates fall um and and capital becomes more abundant so that's sort of the long run trajectory.
0: Okay. Um, how many, okay, so you mentioned the ledger and and loans are being given out and being recorded. Um, how much, so to a scholar, how much of this, these items in documentation still survives today?
1: So we're extraordinarily fortunate um, in that Florence is, is actually quite well-documented. So, so we have, um, uh, you know, uh, extensive accounter book books. Um, these will include what are called ricordanze, which are um, basically autobiographical family histories. We have sort of 100 from the 15th century and many more from, from the 16th. Uh, and we have more of these for Florence in the 14th and 15th centuries than we have for any other city in the early modern world, sort of full stop. So we can know what's happening in the Florentine economy and with specific Florentine businesses over a long time series with a a high degree of precision. Uh, This is because Florentines both uh, generated quite a lot of records. There's There's an official sort of system of account keeping that everybody's taught in what's called abacus schools and these merchant schools. Uh, so that they have legal standing and people keep personal accounts as well as business accounts. So there's, there's a kind of, uh, what Richard call with his call, the kind of accounting culture that, that's um, present in Florence. And then, you know, Florence, as uh, through the sort of accidents of time, kept an unusually uh, large amount of documentation. We as historians are extraordinarily fortunate and the Florentines also did something innovative on the tax side, uh, which is that they passed... Really, the first wealth tax in the world, which was meant, this is in 1427, called the Catasto. And it, it was really, it was meant to be a tax on all of your assets, uh, both your, your physical assets, but also investments and so forth. Uh, and that you could have various deductions, deductions for dependents and so forth. Uh, as time goes on, this is um, politicized and evaded, and it's a little bit politicized even at the very beginning. And it eventually transfers into being a property tax uh, because that's much easier to collect. Uh, But what this means is that we have the ability to both look at personal accounts and also at sort of the official tax records for thousands of households um, on on a regular basis. And in fact, at um, University of Toronto, there's a a mapping project on, on, uh, you know, which looks at some of these 16th century maps and tax records and attempts to sort of cross-reference them so that you can see basically what the tax filing was for various people. And of course, so we can really know the Florentine economy with a level of accuracy and precision that we we really can't for almost anywhere else to the 15th century. Uh, And in fact, for the 16th and 17th centuries, we have tremendous documentation, but it's been so tremendous in fact that we've only sort of just gotten started uh, on that
0: project of sort of seeing how that evolves. Is a lot of it digitized these
1: days? Uh, that there are ongoing digitization projects, but the I mean the scale of the documentation is uh, so large that you know. So the catastrophe, for instance, has been digitized, but um, most of the account books have not. So you'll, you'll still see quite a lot of, of people at um, at work. You know, in different periods, there's there's been a, a census of these They're called the Chancitemento. Uh, there is a uh, a project at the um, Medici Archives at, at, at the Archibaldi uh, Stato in Firenze, which starts really in 1537, which uh, has engaged with the sort of the government side of this, with the um, uh, records generated in that what's called the Medici del Principato. But there's a whole separate set of uh, family archives and, and collections which we're really only, you know, just getting our toes into. Um, so there are... Thousands and thousands of volumes, right? So, uh, it is a very large-scale project. I suspect we will not be done with it during my
0: career. Keeps a scholar like you, uh, you know, keeps you something to keep your teeth sunk into over many years. It sounds like with all that material. Absolutely. So we've chatted about uh, textiles, we've chatted about banking. Is there a third I- industry or sector that you that you want to uh, bring up in this conversation today?
1: Well, so maybe I'll, I'll split that into two pieces. The textile <laughs> side has a growing silk industry, and the wool industry eventually enters a, a dramatic decline in the early 17th century, but the silk industry does not. Uh, And so the silk industry becomes increasingly important. Um, It's never as large of an employer, but it's quite profitable uh, through the 16th and 17th centuries. I I guess what I would flag is there's a very innovative uh, project that the Medici, once Florence switches from being a a republic to a monarchy uh, in the 1530s, uh, developed at the port of Livorno, uh, which is sometimes known in English as Leghorn from Ligorne, it's older name. Uh and, and the port of Livorno is really the port for Pisa after Pisa's harbor has silted up. And that's turned into a pioneering free port. Uh, so that is that you can import and export um, really almost anything you want uh, with a a uh, very low tax and fee regime. Uh, and Livorno extends toleration. There's been a lot of, of research about this, maybe like Cori Tatsara or Francesca DiBolato, uh, on, on the growth of the port, but it, it expands dramatically, first in the 1590s as a grain port, but then as a really a center of operations, especially for Northern European merchants and Jewish merchants. Uh, who are extended a kind of toleration uh, for, for their religious practice that they're not extended in, in, in most other places in the Mediterranean. Uh, so low taxes, toleration, pro-commerce. Uh, so then Tuscany develops in the 17th century, really, this sort of separate commercial island. We might think of it, uh, Corey Totsara has compared it to sort of China's special economic zones. He's probably right about that. Um, that Livorno is the sort of big growth industry, our growth
0: sector there. And that's that's sort of import-export commerce. So Silk has come up on this show in the past a few times by various guests. And apparently at one point in time, it was a trade secret from the East. Is there anything by chance in the records as to how Silk came to be a production item in Florence Anything about uh, who the original person was that may have brought it in or began producing it as a product in Florence? Uh, A company, perhaps, that began originally producing it as a product? Anything in the records about that?
1: Uh, Silk is an interesting, I mean, it has a sort of murky origin story. It comes from China, it goes through the Byzantine world. And then, um, you know, an economic historian like Richard Goldwaith has stressed that there's a basically import substitution that uh, in order to avoid expensively importing it from the Eastern Mediterranean, um, it's developed locally. The key city for that in in Italy is a beautiful city in Tuscany, which uh, is independent of Florence, uh, is Lucca? Lucca is is a sort of, uh, the the place that sort of develops those Italian silk industry. And there's a huge effort to attract Uh, Lucchese silk workers out um, and various attempts to restrict the movement of silk workers and their kind of technical knowledge. So places like Florence are mostly getting it um, secondhand from a place like Lucca and from sort of uh, that kind of leakage of technical skills across the sort of porous frontier. Um, You know, places like Venice have much better connections to the Eastern Mediterranean um, Florence is is uh, a pretty good site for, for textile production, uh, and they have a lot of expertise in, in, in the textile business. You know, I wish I had a, a sort of name as the as the great sort of the importer of that. But uh, and, and it is of course possible that that will eventually be discovered. But but it's um, like with many, and I guess this is something that people have talked about in the spice business. And they talked there's there's often an interest. We might say even now in being a little bit vague as to, and a little bit sort of, um, myth making as to, you know, where your business comes from or how hard it is to make this luxury good. You add a bit of mystique to it, uh, and then you can sell it at a higher price. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, and you might say that the Italian luxury business has been in the business of mystique making, um, around how things are actually made and how much they're worth, uh, you know, for the last seven hundred years or
0: so, and, and of course, very very profitably to this day. Closing question for you, Brian. Mm-hmm. And this has been an excellent chat. If we had more time, we would chat. We would chat more about about this topic. Um, okay, so we started the period. You said fourteenth to seventeenth centuries is what you define the Italian mm-hmm. Renaissance. So, how would you um, how would you share the similarities or juxtaposition between? the end of the period, so when you're getting, you know, you're in the 17th century and the 14th century. How do you compare or contrast those two uh, periods of time?
1: Uh, so, so it's a big change in the 17th century. The wool industry shrinks. Uh, Florence develops uh, so a somewhat larger silk industry. It's uh, less dependent on um, external imports, uh, so there's more produced in Tuscany. Uh, It develops a luxury sector, so a series of—this is in part because of the court in Florence. Uh, It develops what we might think of as a service sector, as Florence becomes a key site in what's known as the Grand Tour. Uh, So especially English, but generally Northern European uh, aristocrats would come with their entourages and seek to pick up a bit of culture and art in Florence. And Florence has an art business, an art export business. It develops as a of first— Artistic Academy. And that's, that's still pretty linked. Uh, and it retains, um, an important finance business. And then I guess the, what is different is that as it achieves political stability, uh, autocratic political stability, but political stability, uh, and the countryside is no longer sort of beset by invading armies the way that it is quite frequently in the 14th century. Um, Florentines pour great fortunes into uh, country estates. So the 16th and 17th centuries is a sort of great villa building period. So much of the kind of beautiful Florentine countryside. um, And that's done for both commercial and social reasons. Um, So... Uh, quite a lot of, you know, quarantine families have their own food and wine supplied from their own states where they go in the countryside, especially during health crises. Um, and uh, so the people will develop a, a kind of mix. And then I guess I would close by saying that the kind of exciting new research has been showing that uh, there's a kind of expansion of access to finance So somebody like Richard Goldwyn again. has shown that even somebody like a musician, a court musician, uh, could become an important uh, or or become an investor um, and and earn profits from making loans to various governments. Um, This this whole sort of uh, development of what you might say is a sort of broader middle class um, investor class. And so, you know, the economy becomes, it's different but in some ways, it sort of continues to become more sophisticated through the 17th century, if no longer growing quickly, like it did
0: in the 14th You have a tremendous amount of knowledge on the history of Florence and Tuscany. Brian, thank you thank for you. coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with everyone today.
1: It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So again, everybody, the forthcoming book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Breggy wrote and is coming out on July 13th, 2021, is entitled Tuscany in the Age of Empire. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Brian and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.